Hello, everyone. We've been away for a couple of weeks, but August is going to be a big month for Vivek and us in the Trojan Venture podcast. Vivek, how are we doing today? We have some exciting things in store. Yeah, man, I'm I'm excited. We got a lot of stuff in store for August. Uh, going back to school, too. Are you excited for that? I am. I am. I We have our first USC football game, I think. I think the first Saturday after the first week of school. So that should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not taking any losses this year, in my opinion. But we'll see. We'll see. As long as Caleb doesn't get hurt. <laughs> yeah. Praying for him. Praying for him. Praying for him. Yes. But today we have some really um, exciting stuff to talk about. And we have a really exciting guest. Vivek and I are really super excited to welcome John Aljanian, managing partner at Next Legacy Partners. John has over two decades of experience investing in both the public and private markets. John served as a vice president at Goldman Sachs for nine years, spanning from 2000 to 2012. After leaving Goldman Sachs in 2012, John joined Aspen Highland Management, a family office, as a partner, and eventually served as CEO from 2016 to 2018. In 2018, John joined Nextplay Capital, a minority-owned venture firm based in the Bay Area, as general partner, where he was responsible for spearheading Nextplay's direct investment platform. In May of this year, Nextplay Capital merged with Legacy Ventures, another Bay Area-based venture firm, to create Next Legacy Partners. At Next Legacy Partners, John has the firm's direct investment platform. Over my sophomore summer, I had the privilege to actually work for John. Um, during my time as a summer associate at Next Play Capital, I can personally attest to the fact that John is an effective leader and an, impa- an impactful investor, and we couldn't be more excited to have him on the show today. Vivek, are we ready to get him on? Absolutely. Let's do it. Hey, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, guys. How are you, Eric? Good to see you, and, and thank you for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to talk with you today about your career and the venture landscape. I know Vivek and I have been really excited for this one. So let's dive right into it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, we told our viewers that you spent a lot of time at Goldman Sachs from 2000 2000 to 2012. Obviously, during that period, you saw the financial crisis happen, um, and there was a lot of levers that made that happen. And right now, you're obviously witnessing kind of the downturn of venture in many areas in the last second half of 2022 and 2023. So my first question is, given that you had a firsthand look at the 2008 financial crisis and the causes behind that, what are some parallels you draw between the 2008 financial crisis and the downturn we see now? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. And, you know, if you think about when I started my career in New York, it was really right kind of at the end of the dot-com boom as well, right? So if you think about kind of that 1999-2000 era, and so there's been, you know, m- multiple cycles that we all see, but let's let's touch upon those two for a minute. I think, you know, in 99-2000, the tech boom that happened, you know, a lot of people tried to try to look at the comparison of what we're seeing today in kind of 21 and 22 as, as, as it relates to that. And I think they're very different. I mean, back then you were just talking about, you know, tech 1.0 coming to existence. And a lot of the companies and businesses that were being created then were really, you know, ideas and thoughts of business models that we didn't even know existed today. The internet was relatively new. We clearly didn't have any iPhones. We didn't have the kind of use cases, um, you know, even with kind of software adoption that we had today. And so that was really kind of when I think about, you know, quote bubbles, that was in that vein because it was also brand new. We just didn't have a sense of what 
what ecosystem would be developed from that. 0809 is very different. 0809 was a balance sheet crisis. You know, this was excessive leverage in the system that ultimately drove bad behavior, um, you know, particularly around the mortgage market. And so, you know, when money is given away for free, and maybe that's the parallel we can use to what's happening in the, what had happened in the world of 21 and 22 and, and whatnot, you know, it, it forces people into taking on risky assets and ultimately into some bad behavior in order to try and compete in those in those markets. And so, you know, when I looked at what happened there, you know, and, and maybe I'll take a step back. I, I believe that every crisis that's going to be a major recessionary problem has to be a balance sheet problem, right? Yeah, because it's that stress in the system that's going to ultimately blow out things in a, at a much larger scale. 08 and 09, we saw that happen pretty dramatically. And, and you know, for, for us that lived through it, it was it was scary. I mean, you started worrying about banks, whether your money was going to be safe sitting in a deposit or whether, you know, if you had cash in your fund, if you were going to be able to even get it out. I mean, it was a very tragic time. And, you know, I was at the time, you know, probably changed me personally. What we saw in 21, 22 was more around exuberance. You know, this was, I think, you know, we can all agree a little bit Fed led. It was, you know, free money that was existing that was forcing people to take on excessive risk. As a result, you had, you know, what we'll call, you know, temporary players come into the venture market and start to put capital at levels that didn't make sense because they had different return objectives than traditional venture funds. And so we got a little bit ahead of our skis to say the least, um, but, you know, it, it very different than in 08, 09 and in, and in quite frankly, 99, 2000 as well. So in 2023, like what are some of the most important things you look for in a founder when deciding whether to invest or not. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know that that changes whether it's 23 or 22 or 21 or 2005. You know, this is a really good question and a hard one, right? Because you're asking, if, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to put our investors capital in what we think are the best opportunities. And unlike in the public world where you have a lot of data that you can kind of scroll through here, you're really talking about, you know, a business model that's still relatively early and the character of an individual who still is kind of developing. That. Um, but most important, I would say there's un intangibles that exist with that, that when you think about individuals that you just see and you say, man, they just are a winner, whether that be in, sports, whether that be in in business, whether that be even in your friendships, you know, you run to some people that are just extraordinary. So, you know, that has to kind of be there. And maybe that's table stakes. And then it's the grit, right? It's the grit that these people you believe are going to have, because every one of these companies for in some way, shape or form will ultimately have to pivot. And does that individual have what it takes? Um, does that individual just seem to command the leadership of people around him? But more importantly, when you look around and see the people that they play in the sandbox with, are these the kind of people that will help elevate them and the kind of people that I would like to be, you know, uh, be around and working with as well? And so I know that's kind of... Um, you know, uh, a soft answer and probably doesn't have as much of the kind of science as the art to it. But truly, when it comes to just the founder portion, forget the company itself, just the founder portion of itself, I think that's really important. And I think a follow up for that, going from the founder portion to kind of the company side or the market side, given the bear market we're in, are there any particular sectors that you're still really bullish on? 
Yeah, good question. Um, you know, and Eric, when you say bear market, I mean, last time I looked, the Nasdaq's up thirty odd percent. The S and P's up, so you know, <laughs> I know the breadth is relatively narrow, but 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 I agree with you. I think we're we're definitely you know feels like the public markets are a little ahead of themselves, and and it's a pretty narrow breadth with the the magnificent seven kind of leading that way. But you know, this is not going to be the answer you want, but I, I I truly believe this is. I'm still very bullish on tech. Um, you know, and that's not just talking the book because of the sector I'm in, but I, I've, I've believed this for a long time. And, I, and I, I think this is still true, which is, you know, GDP in this country, growth is going to continue to be continue to be um, accentuated by technology. You know, if, if COVID taught us anything, it was that tech isn't a nice to have anymore. It's actually a must have. Um, whether that be in, you know, your daily life, whether that be in your professional career. And, you know, there will be different cycles of, of tech that we go through. And some of it will be going to that, you know, kind of tulip phase where it gets into a bubble because we overthink what the opportunities may lie. And some may argue that's where we are with AI today and, and you know, where we were with crypto a couple of years ago. But, you know, the technology themselves, I do still believe, will continue to add a ton of value for generations to come, whether people are paying the right prices for them today or not. I don't know. Um, but I, I, it, so it goes down to, you know, continuing to let the mind and the body create and, and human innovation create in ways and technology is, I believe, where that's going to become. And a lot of that is going to be continued to do. Well, a lot of that will come and continue to do a lot of good in the world as well. So I want to get your opinion on the AI market as of right now. Yeah. Um, is it a bubble? Is it just hype? I mean, to me, it seems like it's legit. Like you said, like, you know, tech has always been a safe space in terms of investing. Um, at least, I mean, I let's get your take on it. You know, I want to see yeah. what you It's a great question. And, and, and let's, we'll remove AI because when I think of bubbles, I think of, you know, escalated prices and valuations. Um, and so, you know, you can have bubbles because people are overpaying for assets today. But let's let's take away the investment side of AI and just talk about the technology of AI. And when I think about what, what machine learning um, and, you know, uh, uh, language models are, are doing and providing, this is not something new. Right. This is something that's been in existence for a long time. I mean, a lot of us can argue, you know, the Netflix of the world and the Amazons of the world and whatnot have been using this technology for many years uh, in very creative ways to be able to uh, to shift human behavior and consumer behavior. What is new, though, is with, you know, um, OpenAI and ChatGPT is now the additional use cases that can be used from this and the ease of use for this to, to, to many different resources. And so. I do believe that we will see AI in every business. When I think about AI today, it's not so much around what's the business model that this particular technology is creating, but how it's so pervasive in every business that exists today and the effects that that can have. Now, with that comes a lot of responsibility, Vivek. I mean, you know, we have to understand that these things can also be used for a lot of bad. And so, you know, I was listening to Eric Schmidt speak uh, about a month and a half ago at a, at a summit they did for his Innovation Endeavors uh, uh, annual meeting. And, you know, he's right. We need to think about where in the AI so that things are going to really add value. It's still the application side is still TBD, right? I mean, it's being used in a lot of different applications, but there's no single purpose. The base layer side has already been kind of created and there's going to be a few winners in that, but it's in kind of in that middle ground where we're going to be seeing a lot of new advancements and probably innovation, but we're going to need to see a lot of regulation and whether that be self-regulated or, or government regulated, uh, maybe some combination of the both. But this is probably 
the biggest technological advancement that we've seen in our generation today outside of the creation of the internet, in my opinion. And you mentioned, obviously, the promise of AI is how pervasive it is beyond just one particular sector. And I think that leads me into my next question. I know that one of the focuses a lot of venture firms are having is expanding internationally, um, even for copycat opportunities of things that already exist domestically. And so from your opinion, what are some kind of hotbeds? Um, it could be domestically, but also internationally that you kind of think are ripe for innovation and people you think really that people should kind of get their feet on the ground in. Yeah. Um, well, this is a topic I love, Eric, because I have a thesis, my own personal thesis that, you know, given that technology has become, again, pervasive um, across all of our lives, both business and personally, but also globally. I mean, if you look back even just five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, and money came into a sector, um, let's say, you know, into venture and private in an area like Latin America. And the minute it came out, that was lost. And all the gains and all the innovation that was started kind of goes by the wayside because it was a nice to have technology. It was nice to have tech innovation. Today, that's not the case. Um, every one of these business, every one of these ecosystems needs to have tech ingrained into their societies. And, and if you think of where the developed world is relative to the developing world, I actually think the low-hanging fruit exists in these emerging economies, Latin America, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, where just simple things that are locally built businesses don't exist today that make the lives of both the consumer and the enterprise a lot more successful. And so that's going to happen, right? That, I think, do, does that mean those are going to be $100 billion opportunities? Probably not. But will these be businesses that get created that become two to ten billion dollar opportunities? Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that's a hotbed that doesn't seem like it's crazy, but it seems like in the next five to seven, maybe ten years, there's a real window here to just do that, to be able to build that out. Um, but when I think about where money is going, you know, we've seen a lot of money go into climate, right? We've seen a lot of money now uh, go into into AI. I think one area that we're starting to continue to see advancements that had been, you know. I'll call it somewhat dormant for a while, is, is defense uh, and aerospace. Um, and I think that, you know, again, these are very capital intense businesses. They've historically been very cyclical in nature, in particular around not just the economy, but the, the, the uh, political calendar as well, or the presidential calendar for that matter. Um, but I think there's a real, there's something real there now, right? With what we're seeing in, in travel happening to space, not just on the leisure side, but you think of the opportunities of being able to build, you know, potentially manufacturing opportunities there, the amount of information and data that can be collected and, and, and brought back. I just think that's an area that is a hotbed that we're starting to see in some bigger economies today, but will certainly become important for most of the major economies around the world. Um, yeah, that would be probably the biggest Right. Okay. So obviously to get here, you've had to make a lot of right choices with investing, but what are some of the investment mistakes that you've made either on like the public markets or the private side that have helped you become, you know, a better investor and hone your strategy? How much time do we have? Because that could probably take up most of the rest of the afternoon if that works for you guys. Um, there are a lot, Vivek. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you learn every day in this business. Um, and I think that's why it makes it so challenging. Um, you know, but one of probably the two biggest things, and I'd say public is very different than the private side. Um, the nice part about the public side is you can be wrong uh, and there's liquidity to be able to get out. I think the challenge for most people in being good investors is you fall too much in love with your trade 
when you stay in it too long in the public side. And then oftentimes you get a little bit too over your skis in sizing. Um, and that causes an additional issue. Um, so I think those are probably the two big ones. When it comes to, you know, analyzing, yes, we fall into value traps. I've fallen into, you know, um, strategies where, you know, you kind of underestimated what the risk could be. Um, you, you clearly can't time markets. Um, so trying to time markets is very challenging and being very, you know, uh, adamant about your view as opposed to being open to seeing both sides of views. So, you know, I think if you have a long-term view, look, there's no better wealth creator than the public markets, right? They've proven that to be the case over time. It's just a matter of whether you're, you're sized appropriately to be able to stay in the game long enough. I think that's the big secret there without getting into the merits of picking in good companies and bad companies, but just from a side, venture is very different than that. Um, venture is a very long duration asset. And so you don't know for a very long period of time, whether what you're investing is going to be successful or not, especially when you're looking at things in the earlier stages. Um, my biggest thing, probably when I joined uh, or got into the alternative space was I was a value-based investor. So I always thought, you know what, I need to be able to buy at a good price in order to be able to, to, to win at the end. And so in the beginning of my career, I passed on a lot of really good companies. Um, and my thought was, is that, you know, man, it's going to be, I don't want to overpay for these assets because I was fortunate to have a public market mindset that I knew what the public, or at least thought I knew what the public would pay for these types of assets down the road. And I couldn't get there. And so looking out two or three years forward to start paying a multiple that was T plus, you know, three years was, was tough for me. That lesson that I learned though, very quickly was that there is no value in venture. <laughs> at best, you're getting like GARP growth at a reasonable price. And so um, that's something I've, you know, has been really, really, and a good example of that would have been, um, you know, just looking at, at really great companies that have become leaders in the space. A lot of people passed on Uber, if you think about it, because it was never cheap in its existence. Not any of the rounds that it ever looked cheap, right? And people felt like that was okay. SpaceX, probably similar type of thing. Um, Facebook, a similar type of thing, right? These were businesses. So you got to really invest in good businesses uh, and just make sure the price makes some kind of sense. The other thing I learned in venture uh, is that you don't need to be, it doesn't need to be just a winner take all model. Number two and three in the space can actually do well. And a, and a good example of that is when we had invested in Uber in the family office, I had, a show, I had an opportunity to look at Lyft at like $600 million. And I passed because I said, Uber, we're in Uber, they're going to be the market leader and there's no room for others. And you know, they were pretty close to bankruptcy before GM came in and kind of gave them the funding that they needed. And clearly there was enough space for a number two and quite even arguably maybe even a number three. And so you can still be very successful in big market opportunities, investing in the second and third options as well. And so that's something that has opened my eye to uh, the way I think about um, industries and, and companies. And John, you just talked about obviously the difference between the public and private side. And one of the things that people would say about the VC business compared to other areas of finance is that it's much more people business um, than on the public side. And so obviously a lot, there's a lot of importance in building out your network from an LP side, from a founder side. So how do you kind of go about cultivating and maintaining those relationships with people in the space? One of the most important things, I think in general in the world, but also in, in venture, you know, Eric, you hit it on the head. Venture is very different because if you think about the kind of playbook for venture, it's it's selecting, right? It's sourcing, it's selecting, it's winning, and it's working. 
uh, and it works in that manner. And every other asset class, yes, it's about sourcing, it's about selecting, and it's about and, and those two. But the winning and the working are, are non-trivial to to venture. Um, I often refer to this not as an asset class, but as an access class. And so to your point, in order to get access, you got to get people that are willing to kind of open their doors for you. And so to do that, it is very relationship oriented. Um, you know, we're fortunate at, at Next Legacy because we have a very strong fund to fund business. We're LPs and a lot of the great investors and funds um, in the Valley and, and beyond. And it's through the relationships that we've made with those principles that we're able to get access to some of the best companies that we invest in. But it takes time and it takes work to be able to to be able to build those relationships. My advice to everybody on that is, is be as authentic as you can. You know, we often are so busy and we're taught to network and we're taught to, you know, kind of make sure that we're doing in the room and meeting as many people as we can and getting as many business cards as we can, but everyone's doing that. So how do you stand out? How do you be different? What can you do that actually is authentic, that is genuine for you, the individual? Because, you know, we do see, and everybody does see when you're, when you're, working too hard it's you want to build relationships from the ground up with people that you want to be around and with people that want to be around you you know somebody told me at one time there's um there's two types of people that you meet those that add value in a room and those that just take value from a room and try to be the person that adds value in the room try to be the one that actually makes a difference and i think you'll find over time that people will start to resonate toward you as opposed to the other way around um but it's important it is important, you know, and when you're young in your career, that's harder to do. I do think that being, you know, authentic, um, but also being very um, good at at following up uh, is important. Um, and those are the ways that a lot of that I recommend for a lot of kids to do it. But, you know, it's 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 an, that is definitely an art and not a science. <laughs> I will tell that. But it's important that you you get that right, especially in the venture world. You know, just to give a sense on that. When you want to go invest in Apple, you don't have to get the, the entrepreneur, the founder of Apple to go, hey, you know, what? I really like Eric and I'd love to have him on my cap table. But if I want to go invest in a private company, I need not only, you know, to be able to get the access, but the entrepreneur and the board and others on the on the cap table to say, man, I would really like Next Legacy on that cap table as well, because I think they're good partners that play well in in, in the sandlot with us. And so it's it's important to build those relationships and it just takes time. It's a lot of, you know, being out there, being with people, spending time with people, uh, but again, in a very thoughtful way, not in a, in a transactional way. So you spoke a little bit about being authentic and like, you know, your work. Um, what else would you tell your, you know, 22 year old self, given your professional and personal experiences now? You know, when you're 22, or at least when I was 22, I was pretty arrogant. <laughs> I thought I could do everything and rule the world. And, you know, to some extent, you need that mentality in order to be able to succeed. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if I was to look back and I tell all young people is, is listen to other people as well. Be willing to be open about others' advice, even if you don't agree with it. Be at least thoughtful around making sure you have all the information before you start moving down your path. Um, you know, we live in a world today where everyone seems to want to jump from one firm to another firm to another firm because we're looking for opportunities. Um, so take a step back and wonder what it would be like if I just stayed where I am or what if I created that, what I want it to look like and what would that be? Um, I think there's a lot of answers to be had there. Um, but, you know, it's easy to to want to speculate on what the other side of the grass, what the grass looks like on the other side of the fence. But, you know, really being thoughtful around what you have and what you can build. You know, I'll give you an example. 
one of the firms I was with, I was like, man, I really want to move to the top. And there's so many young people here that are above me that if there's a glass ceiling for me or there's a ceiling for me to be able to get up. And so I left. And that's actually when I ended up going to, to New York and joining Goldman. But three months later, the people on top of me left too. And had I stayed, I would have had an opportunity to be on top of that. So I just, it's a, it's an interesting example. And you see that time and time again. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, those who stick around end up, you know, getting all the spoils. And so being really kind of thoughtful around that. The other thing is, is I didn't orchestrate my career really. Like I didn't navigate through. I just went with a lot of the things that had come my way in my path and been fortunate for a lot of reasons to be able to have gone in the right direction, but probably been a, a little bit more thoughtful around how I navigated my career would have been something I would have, would probably tell younger people today is that, you know, don't just you know, move by the wind, but actually think about what it is you want in the end game and do things strategically, get yourself there, as opposed to just kind of running from various different, different um, opportunities. And John, you have three wonderful kids. I got the opportunity to kind of in, actually intern with uh, John's daughter last summer. And so I think one of the things that you do well and that a lot of people in the VC business do well is kind of creating a people culture. And so from a family's perspective, what are kind of some of the main values you instill in your kids? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. You've spent minimal time with them, so you get to see the good spots and not all the, the <laughs> rough spots. But no, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, my wife, Beth, and I, we have, uh, you know, we have three great kids. We have a 20-year-old daughter um, that Eric had worked with Isabella and then 18 year old twins, which, you know, we're all going to be off to college here next year, which is kind of sad. Um, but, you know, it's a great question. And when we were first starting our family, Beth and I would talk like, what would we, what do we want for kids? Like if we, we were successful parents, what would that look like for our, for our, for our kids? And, and clearly, you know, one of the things that resonated with me is I just want them to be good people is what Beth said. I want them to be good citizens, to be thoughtful, to be hardworking, to be respectful. Um, and so those were, you know, very important values growing up for us, uh, for our family. And, you know, that included sh um, showing that by example and setting that by example, but also asking a lot of them, right? Asking them to do things that maybe some of their friends didn't do, putting them on paths where, you know, we sat down and we had dinner as a family every night. Um, you know, we put each other first uh, versus others. We made sure that they, you know, went and helped their grandparents and mowed the lawn and take the garbages out and be be a good human being to them and and look around the room and see where things needed help and, and be resourceful and be helpful. And so, you know, when I go back to those kinds of values, I guess it was, you know, think about others, not just yourself. You know, we talked about what it means to be, you know, transactional versus relationship oriented. Be, you know, think about relationships over just transactions um, and just be a good person. You know, you had asked earlier about what it takes to build relationships or how you get access into deal flow. Sometimes people ask me, how do you get into some of the great deals you get into? And I say, well, we have this great community. We have all this. But the bottom line is just be a good person. It's amazing how far that can go in life. Just be a good person. And so, you know, we try and instill that into our kids and we hopefully we've done a, a good job to date and, you know, we're, uh, we're excited for where the path is, is going to take them in the future as well. So moving on to, um, you know, your career at Nextplay, um, what actually attracted you to the opportunity to play in 2018? 
Yeah, you know, I was just leaving a, a, a family office at that time. For six years, I had learned how to invest in the alternative space. I was running a multifamily office for three individuals, really focused on private equity, venture, and real estate. Um, and having grown up in the Bay Area, the venture side really resonated with me. Um, and so I, I took a liking to that probably is not more, but as much. And there were more opportunities because of the time we were talking about. Um, and this was 2012, 13, 14, 15. Um, you know, this is when Uber, Facebook, Twitter, Zynga, all these things were coming in the in the market. Um, and so I found myself flying back and forth um, to the to the West Coast a lot. The office was in New York and, you know, um, it became almost unsustainable. And so through that period, I actually met Ryan, who had founded um, Next Play, and we became friends in the process. And and I always told him, you know, you ran kind of a outsourced family office model. You would invest in some great funds and then use those those relationships to invest in some companies. But you know, you're not leveraging the direct side enough. Um, and so we stayed in touch and worked on a couple of deals together. And and when we ultimately moved the office to the to the West Coast, we you know continued our dialogue and and. You know, he offered me the opportunity to come join and build at a bigger scale. And, and that's always what I wanted. The goal here and, you know, part of the reason why, you know, I love having interns like my daughter and Eric and this year, one of my cousins was it as well as, you know, I wanted to build something that was going to be a, a legacy for the generations that would come. And, and Ryan and was very much like minded in that. And so at the forefront, it was around that mission. It was around building something that was going to be bigger than what we are. Um, you know, clearly the other part of it that really resonated is we wanted to create a, a platform that would give the community that, that we happen to serve the opportunity to have a seat at the table in venture. Um, and that didn't always exist. And so, you know, kind of that mission of being able to build a business while obviously doing good for a community were two of the biggest things that got me to come and join. And, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a natural thing that you would think, given you know all the stuff I had done, but it was probably the most rewarding and exciting thing that I've ever done. And now that we're on the next path to the next play, next legacy vision, um, I think we have a bigger platform to be able to do that going forward, which I think is excites me more than more than I've been in in, in many many years. Well, John, Vivek, and I really want to just thank you for taking the time. Um, it was no surprise to me how well thought out your answers were, but I really think especially people that are still in college and kind of looking to find their purpose to have you as a mentor, I know has been such a great thing to have. And um, I'm sure people will take value out of this conversation. So thank you so much. No, I mean, thank you. And and if I can, I mean, shout out to both of you as well. This is a really cool thing that you're doing. And, and, you know, I've been fortunate to hear some of the others and you get to bring some really lively and 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 thoughtful leaders to come and speak on on the show. And it's a testament to, to both of you that you have those types of relationships. And, you know, if I can be helpful to you in any way going forward, please let me know. And, and I wish you guys, you know, all the best. This is really awesome. Well, John, thank you again. And we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, John. Well, Vivek, I thought that was a great conversation. John is so knowledgeable about every part of the investing landscape and his answers obviously showed that. So I, I thought we had a great conversation. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think he broke it down really well for us um, and made it a lot more easy to understand the complicated world of, you know, venture and finance. So yeah, great conversation. Yeah, and I really think that John especially touched on how important it is to develop your network and 
be um, kind of take priority on kind of relationships over transactions. And I think he's done a great job of that in his career. And I think that attributes to a lot of, or at least some of his success. So I think that is a great lesson for us. Um, we're actually back tomorrow with a another episode, but um, obviously it was great to have John on the show today and Vivek, enjoy the rest of the day and we'll we'll speak tomorrow. Yep, sounds good. All right.